There is no substitute for the preaching and teaching of God's Word. Each weekday on Enjoying the Journey, Scott Pauley leads us in a brief study of Scripture. Today, on the Weekend Pulpit, we are happy to share a full-length Bible message given through Scott's pulpit ministry. These messages were recorded live in a local church or gospel event in recent days. It is our prayer that the message will be a help to you today. nice to know all God's people said yeah that's the first time some of you said amen all day uh, I've enjoyed being with your church and I, I thank God for your pastor and his wife and their faithful work here you know I'm with a lot of pastors my dad has pastored the same church for 32 years and uh, I served under a pastor for nearly 20 years and I've learned something I've learned that it it takes something for a pastor to go somewhere but it really takes something for a pastor to stay where God wants him to be. And your pastor has done just that, and I thank God for his faithfulness, and thank God for your faithfulness being here today. And many of you here last night and then early this morning, and I just rejoice in all of it. I want you to open the Word of God with me, if you will, please, to the Gospel according to Luke. And uh, some of you are looking at me a little strange, but stay with me a second. I want you to find Luke chapter 17 and hold that in your left hand, and then I want you to turn to our text in the book of 2 Peter. We're studying through this little book of 2 Peter, not all of it, of course. Last night and this morning, I preached to you from 2 Peter chapter 1, today from 2 Peter chapter 2. And uh, I want to compare Scripture with Scripture, if I may, for just a moment so that you'll see this. I love the way God connects things in His Word. Uh, somebody tell me, who wrote the book of Peter? Would you tell me, please? Peter, very good, all right. Just making sure you're with me. Peter wrote it. And, of course, Simon Peter was one of the first disciples of the Lord Jesus. He was with Christ in Luke chapter number 17 when the Lord Jesus was preaching one of his famous sermons. And look at Luke chapter 17 with me for just a moment, beginning in verse number 26. Jesus is talking about the end of time, the return of the Lord. Look at Luke 17, 26. And as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be also in the days of the Son of Man. They did eat. They drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all, likewise also. As it was in the days of Lot, they did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded, but the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all, even thus shall it be. In the day when the Son of Man is revealed. I want you to take your pen, if you would, please, and mark in verse 26, <clears throat> as it was in the days of Noah. And then come down to verse number 28 and mark this expression, as it was in the days of Lot. Two Bible characters separated by 400 years and two geographical locations under very different circumstances, and yet connected by Christ. With that in mind, turn now to 2 Peter chapter 2. And 2 Peter 2 describes for us the wicked world in which we're living full of false prophets and people leading people away from Christ instead of to Christ. 
And look at verse number 4. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved into judgment. And, verse 5, spared not the old world, but saved who, please, church? Noah. Circle it in your Bible. Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow making them an example unto those that after should live ungodly, and delivered just who? Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them and seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. And I love verse 9. Would you read it out loud with me, church? Ready? The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. Two men. There's both a comparison and a contrast between these two men. And this is fascinating to me. Peter is not the first to connect their lives to one another and them to us. Jesus was. And Peter, who sat under the ministry of the Lord Jesus and heard exactly what Jesus taught about Noah and Lot, now many years later, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, comes full circle back to the exact same examples of these two men. And this is what's fascinating. He's writing to people who are living at the end of the age, at the end of time, on the verge of eternity, on the brink of the revelation of Jesus Christ. And where does he take them? He takes them all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. Because Noah and Lot, both of them, are found in the book of Genesis. Recently, I have discovered, for me at least, that the book of Genesis has come alive in a new way. It is almost like those first principles are exactly what we need to hear at this moment when we're living on the edge of the revelation of Jesus. Do you understand Jesus is coming soon? You know that, right? Any moment the trumpet may sound. Look, he may come while I'm preaching today. How many of you would be all right with that? Yes? If Jesus comes while I'm preaching today, it will be no interruption. A far greater meeting will be planned in a much better location than this one. But I want you to know any moment Jesus Christ may come, and if that is true, then it behooves us to prepare for that day when there's a great division between those who belong to the Lord and those who who do not belong to the Lord. I would say to you, as I look across this auditorium this morning, there could be someone here without Christ. And if that's the case, you need Jesus. You need your sins forgiven. But by and large, I'm looking this morning at faithful believers, Christian people, folks who profess faith in Christ, members of this church. And in this room, there are two groups of people. They're not male and female. They're not old and young. They're not rich and poor, educated and uneducated. They're not those seated on this side or those seated on this side. That's not the way God views them. In this auditorium, there are two groups of people. There are Noahs and there are Lots. And every person in this room is one or the other. And I wonder this morning, which one are you? If we could pull back the spiritual curtain and see you not like we see you and not like you see yourself, but like God Almighty sees you at this moment, which line would you stand in? Both of them belonged to the Lord. Both of them lived on the edge of judgment. Both of them lived in a world preparing for the wrath of God. Both of them had their moment and their opportunity. And look, 
Both of them stood before God in the end for what they did with their opportunity. Are you Noah or are you Lot? Let me give you several things. I want you to make a few notes, if you will, this morning so you can meditate on this long after this preacher's voice is silent. Number one, let me show you some things that are similar. First, their days were similar. Now, immediately, we want to go to the immorality of their days. At Noah's age, the imagination of man's heart was only evil continually. And Lot's day, we know Lot. We know Sodom and Gomorrah and all the wickedness and debauchery of their day. And somebody says, I get it, I get it, preacher. You're saying that our day is like the day of Noah's day and like the day of Sodom and Gomorrah because of the immorality and idolatry and wickedness all around us. But do something just for a second. Go back with me to Luke 17 just for a moment. Now hold your place in Peter. We're coming right back. And look at Luke 17 and notice what Jesus emphasized about their days because, frankly, it is not what I would think. It is not the wickedness and immorality that Jesus emphasizes. What is it? In verse 27, they ate. They drank. They got married and they gave their children in marriage. Let's take a survey. How many of you have eaten in the last 24 hours? Would you raise your hand, please? How many of you are already looking forward to eating when the preacher stops preaching today? That's what I thought. We eat, we drink, we have our meals, we go about our lives. How many married people are here today? Now, for the record, let me testify, I sure am glad to be one of those married people today. And my bride of 25 years is with me, and I I love that. And this year, we had a first in our family. We gave in marriage. We not only got married, we gave in marriage. Our oldest daughter, Morgan, got married in January. Preacher, I prayed for the rapture to happen before that day. God did not answer my prayer. I want you to know that. He answered her fiancé's prayer, and so they're married. And uh, I had one line. It was a tough line. I practiced it a lot, and I had a hard time getting it out. But I had one line in the wedding. Her mother and I, oh, that's a tough thing to say. She was given in marriage, but that's normal. How many of you think it's normal to eat and drink and people get married and and parents give their children in marriage? How many of you know that's normal, yes? And then look down, look down at Luke 17 and verse number 28. Look at Lot's day. They ate and drank, so they're still eating and drinking. And now they bought, they sold, they planted, they build it. <laughs> Is there anything inherently wrong with buying and selling? Let me ask it a different way. How many of you have bought or sold anything this week? Would you raise your hand, please? Yeah. So you paid money for something or you sold something? You did business. Uh, anybody here have a garden? I'm just curious. Anybody have a garden here? Yeah, these are good days for a garden. Our son Grant is 17. He decided this year he's going to have his own garden. My mom and papa's garden wasn't good enough. He had to have his own garden. How many of you know when your 17-year-old has a garden, you have a garden? You know what I'm saying. And so it's, it's been a process and a project, let me tell you. But we planted and uh, we build. We build houses and we, we build out buildings and we build things. And some of you are in the process of building a, build, a, building a business. And, and so life is full of all of that. Look at these verses. This is fascinating to me. Instead of emphasizing the, the wicked imagination of Noah's day or the terrible immorality of Lot's day, look at what Jesus talks about, the necessities of life and the relationships of life and the business interactions of life. Watch, please. Things that are not inherently evil in themselves. But what was it that marked Noah's day and Lot's day? Are you ready for this? There's no mention of God in either one of those lists. 
It was not evil that they lived. It was evil that they lived without giving any thought to God. It was not evil that they ate and drank. It was evil that they ate and drank and they forgot that it was God in heaven who gave them the food and the water to consume. It was not evil that they got married or that they gave in marriage. It was evil that they forgot the one who created family to start with and made it possible that we could have this kind of union and enjoy richly all the things that God gives us to enjoy. It was not wicked and evil that they planted and that they, that they bought and sold and built things. It was wicked and it was evil that they did all of that without giving any regard to God. May I tell you what's so awful in our world today? People immediately want to go to sodomy and immorality and all the wickedness. Listen to me very carefully. Those things are simply the natural progression of the debased heart that moves further and further away from God. You can't fix that by trying to stop that. You've got to go back to the beginning, not to the fruit sin, but to the root cause. And the root cause is we are living in a day where people live their normal lives without ever giving any thought to Almighty God. Go back to 2 Peter with me for just a minute. There's a key word here that unlocks this. Look at verse number 5. When I stop, you say the next word out loud. Ready? Look at verse 5. He spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the what? Circle that word in your Bible, ungodly. Look at verse number 6. Turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that after should live. What's the word, church? ungodly when God repeats himself there's an emphasis here do you know what the word ungodly means the word ungodly means giving no regard to God and here's what's really interesting did you know you can be one of God's children and live ungodly did you know you can sit in a church building on Sunday and live an ungodly life did you know you can go through the motions and mechanics the the routines and rituals of the Christian faith but be living an ungodly life. And I'll tell you why that is. Because ungodliness is not their sin. It is our sin. Ungodliness is not just a sin of the flesh that's easy to spot. Very often, it's a sin of the spirit that grows beneath the surface. And one of the things that marked their day and ours is that we are living in a world of people who give very little regard to Almighty God. We give God a nod on Sunday, but I wonder come Monday, how much thought do you give to God? The psalmist said, seven times a day do I praise thee for thy marvelous works. Let me ask you a question. How often every day do you praise God? How many times a day does the word of God come alive in you? In another place, the psalmist said, evening and morning and at noon will I pray and cry aloud. How many times a day do you truly pray? I'm not talking about say a prayer, go through some religious cliche, some prayer we pull out of your pocket. I'm asking, how many times a day do you really give regard to Almighty God? Their days were similar. There's a second thing I want you to write down, and it's this. Their designation was similar. Did you notice that the Holy Spirit used the same word to, to describe both Noah and Lot? This is just the mercy and grace of God because when I think of Noah, I think of a great man. When I think of Lot, I think of a bum, excuse me. I think of a guy who really blew it, lost his family and missed his moment. And yet, aren't you glad that God loves sinners and God is merciful to sinners? In fact, I'd say more days than not, I, I've identified more with Lot than I have with Noah. God help us all. But notice the word. Would you mark it? In verse number 5, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And in verse number 8, Lot was that 
righteous man. Oh, I love this. One word designates both of them. God says they were both righteous men. They were saved men. See, there's only one way to be righteous, and that's through God's righteousness. Noah didn't know God because Noah was a good man. Look, please, Noah knew God the same way Lot knew God, and that was God in his amazing grace extended his mercy and salvation to these two men. Both of these men, one of them who looked like a real follower of God and one not so much, but both of them had experienced the righteousness of Almighty God in their life through faith. And I tell you, that's where all of us have to begin. But here's the striking contrast between the two. Look, please. One of them allowed the righteousness of God to become a living reality in his life, and one of them hid that where nobody else knew it. Let me show you a verse. Go back in your Bible in the New Testament to 2 Timothy chapter 2 for just a moment. I had this verse on my mind. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse number 19. The Bible says, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are His. I've circled the word His in my Bible. Let me just stop and praise God and say, I am glad to be His today. I belong to Jesus and praise God He belongs to me. Anybody else glad you are His? By the way, even when you don't feel like it, guess what? God knows them that are His. But notice the second half of the verse. This is very important. And. Don't miss the conjunction because even the conjunction is a revelation. And let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Watch please. God knew Noah was his and God knew Lot was his. The problem is they both lived in the first part of this verse but only Noah lived in the last part of this verse. Noah departed from iniquity and lived like a righteous man, and Lot did not. Their designation was the same, but the Lord knew there's a difference in the way they're living their lives. Go back to 2 Peter. Let me show you a third thing. Not only were their days similar and their designations similar, but notice, please, their deliverances were similar. Look what the Bible says in verse number 5. God saved Noah. He didn't spare the old world, but he saved Noah. Remember, he put him inside the ark. He spared him. The world was destroyed, but Noah was saved. Look at verse number 8. The Bible says of Lot, that righteous man dwelling among them, seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. That's a shocking thing to me, but Lot was grieved even by the sin around him. He was vexed by it. He did nothing about it. He said nothing about it, but he was grieved by it. What a picture of most modern Christians today. They're annoyed by what's going on in our world. They're aggravated and agitated by sinners all around them, but they say nothing about it, and they do nothing about it, and it makes no practical difference in the way they live their life. I wonder, are you Noah or are you Lot? But in the end... The fire did not fall on Sodom and Gomorrah until Lot got out and the flood waters did not come on the old world until Noah got in. Their deliverances were the same. And I've got a good word for you this morning. You ready for this? God who saved Noah and saved Lot is going to spare his children from the judgment that is getting ready to come on this planet. Look, friends, I'm not looking for the Antichrist. I'm looking for Christ. 
And as bad as it is, look, I am not expecting to be here when all of hell's powers are unleashed on this planet. I'm going to another place. Now, if you want to stay, that's your business. But I want you to know, look at verse number 9. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and reserve the unjust under the day of judgment to be punished. The same God that brings judgment on the wicked in the end always brings his deliverance to his own people in the end. The fire and the flood did not touch Noah and Lot and praise God, the wrath of heaven will not touch God's children at the end of this age. Christ is coming, and Christ is taking us out of this world to be with him. On April the 14th, 1912, the ship that God himself could not sink, they said, cut through the icy waters of the North Atlantic. And at 11.40 at night, it hit a giant iceberg and ripped open several watertight compartments. In a matter of moments, it started to list. And in a matter of minutes, it started to sink. And in a matter of hours, the Titanic had gone to the bottom of the ocean. And hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people had perished. There was a man on board that ship named Robert Bateman. Robert Bateman was a dedicated Christian man. He knew the Lord. He loved the Lord. He was living for the Lord. Robert Bateman wrote his nephew Tom, who lived here in the United States, while he was on board the Titanic. He wrote it on Titanic letterhead, and they gave him a description of the boat, and his, his mail got off post, got off the boat before the sinking of the Titanic. Robert Bateman's body was discovered. He was one of a very few bodies that were, that were pulled out of the Atlantic after that fateful night. They didn't know who he was at first. They, they tagged his body, number 174. That's all he was, just a number. And then after a while, they were able to identify his body. That was the body of Robert Bateman. They returned the body to the family. The family had the memorial service and buried the man. And about two weeks after the Titanic had gone to the bottom of the ocean and Robert Bateman had finally been identified and buried, about two weeks went by and Tom, his nephew, went out to the mailbox to check the mail one afternoon. He opened the mailbox pulled out several envelopes and started flipping through them and found an envelope with, on Titanic stationery addressed to him with a return address of his Uncle Robert. How many of you think that would be a little spooky? He opens the envelope and starts to read and his Uncle Robert described the beauty of the ship and the stateroom and, and all the food and, and the, the extravagances of it and how beautiful it was. And then Robert Bateman, this, this faithful Christian man, came to the end, and this was the way he closed his letter to his nephew Tom. He said, but Tom, as wonderful as this ship is, he said, my greatest thought is this, if this ship goes to the bottom of the ocean, I shall not be down there. I shall be up yonder with Jesus. Somebody said, preacher, what do you think is going to happen with our beloved land and, and the world we're living in? I have no idea, but here's what I know. i got good, really good news for you this morning. It is this. Look, if the whole thing unravels and comes apart tomorrow and the whole ship goes to the bottom of the ocean, we will not be down there. We will be up yonder with the Lord Jesus Christ. God will take care of his own. And so, there's a lot of similarities here. Look at them again. Their days are similar. Their designation is similar. Their deliverances are similar. So the question is, how do they differ? And why does God use these two men who seem to be on polar extremes of their walk with God? Would you write this down? Their difference is simple. There is a difference. What is the difference? And immediately we're 
tend to say, well, you know, Noah was a godly man and lived the right kind of life. And, and Lot, he, he was an ungodly man and lived in an ungodly place. But yet the reality is there's no record that Lot himself took part in their ungodly deeds. In fact, the Bible says that he vexed himself. So what is the difference? What is the great distinction between these two men? Well, let me give you a little context, and I think this will help open it to us. Do you know what 2 Peter chapter 2 is about? If we took time to read the whole chapter, if I read it all to you, it's about apostates, false teachers, people in the last days, watch this please, who are spewing out of their mouth, who are speaking out of the overflow of their wicked heart, their lies, with one goal. They're trying to lead people in the wrong direction away from God. In fact, there's an emphasis in this chapter on their words. Uh, look at verse number, look at verse 1. They're false prophets. They are false teachers. Look at verse 2, the way of truth, evil spoken of. Look at verse 3, through covetousness shall they with feigned words. Look at verse 10, the end of verse 10, they speak evil of dignities. Look at verse 12, they speak evil of the things that they understand not. Do you see all these references to their words, to their speaking, to what comes out of their mouth? And I was reading and studying this passage and meditating on the life of Noah and the life of Lot and saying to the Lord, help me understand now why these are the two men that you use and hold up as examples, both the positive and negative. Look, please, don't miss the great difference and distinction between these two men. One of them opened his mouth and spoke and the other one stayed silent in fact let me prove it to you look at verse number five the bible does not say that noah was a boat builder it calls him a what did you ever notice that a preacher of righteousness he didn't just build a boat he told the truth all the while he's pounding those nails and building that ark and getting ready for those animals and getting ready for the work God had given him to do. All that time, you know what he's doing? He's preaching, he's testifying, he's telling the truth, he's trying to get the gospel out. And what of Lot? Lot, who grieved himself over the sin around him, who, who vexed his soul every day with a filthy conversation of the wicked. Lot, who was a righteous man, look please, kept his mouth closed, kept it all to himself. And because of that, may I tell you the difference in their two days? Look please, Noah took some people with him on that ark of salvation. It wasn't many, but praise God, there were eight of them, Hebrews 11 tells us. There were eight on board that boat that got gloriously saved because one man not only said he was a Christian, he lived like it and spoke the truth of God to other people. And what of Lot? Lot not only lost his town, he lost his family. Remember Lot's wife? You see those two boys staying behind in that city and burning to death? And what of the two girls? Somebody said they escaped. No, they really didn't escape because look at their vileness in the mountain. Look at the wickedness that had gotten in their hearts. I'm speaking like a daddy right now. I can't think of anything worse. I'm thinking those nearest and dearest on earth to you are lost forever. I can't think of anything worse than to think you would be saved and snatched out of the fire and they would be left behind. But I tell you, I believe the great difference between Noah and Lot was not just in their relationship to God. The great difference was in this. One of them was willing to speak the truth to others and the other one did not. And I'm going to tell you what we're in desperate need of right now. Some people to get their mouths open. You know, we, 
we talk about politics and we fuss about the world and we talk about current events and news and all that kind of thing. But I'm going to tell you what we need. We need some of God's children to open their mouth and start talking about salvation through faith in Jesus Christ and the only way of eternal life and pointing people to Jesus Christ. When we get there, will anybody point at you and say, that man brought me to Jesus? That lady loved me to Christ. That family prayed for our family until we got saved. Will anybody say that of you? Will anybody point at you at the judgment seat of Christ and say that man was the Noah who got me to the ark of safety, who got me to Jesus? When you stand there before Almighty God someday, look, I'm glad I'm going to heaven. I'm glad you're going to heaven. But who are you taking with you? When we stand there someday, who will you say this is the person that I brought along with me because I wanted them to know God? Preacher, I'm going to tell you one of my great burdens at this juncture. We were talking about it last night. We have special meetings and we go through the motions and people want the preacher to get up and speak a good word and talk about God and point people to the Lord. But we're never going to win communities like that and we're never going to see this nation turn to God like that. The only way to make a real and lasting eternal impact is that every Christian, everybody in this room, every man, every woman, every child, every young person that really knows God has got to open their mouth and begin to speak about the salvation of Jesus Christ. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so and I'm going to tell you something we got a world of people right now carrying their banners and shouting their creeds in the streets of this city and some of them are liberal and some of them are conservative but where pray tell me are God's people who are telling what Jesus means to them and the only hope of salvation in this world and in the next you want to see something big happen in this town for God I'm going to tell you how Let every member of this church become a messenger of God's grace. Let every person in this room take seriously the opportunity and obligation to share the good news of Jesus Christ and get other people ready for the judgment that is to follow. That doesn't mean everybody's going to listen. Noah preached all those years and only eight people got saved. By the way, Hebrews 11 tells us that it was his own family. Maybe that'd be a good place for all of us to start. Is your family in the ark of safety? Is there anybody that you know and love that you don't want to go to hell that desperately needs Jesus Christ? I was preaching in Kentucky several years ago in a little country church. In the middle of my message, a woman about three rows back on the right-hand side started weeping. Now, I don't mean just tears running down her face. I mean sobbing. I tried to get to the end of the message quickly and give the appeal, give the invitation. I knew God was speaking to her about something. I didn't know what. Before I could finish my preaching, she jumped up out of her seat. She crawled over three people. I can see her right now. She got to the aisle, and she didn't come this way. She went that way. And she ran a full outrun to the back of the auditorium and hit the door and never came back. About two weeks went by, and I got a letter in the mail from her. She said, Preacher, I'm writing to tell you First of all, forgive me for disrupting the meeting in Kentucky. She said, but I wanted you to know why. She said, I'm a Christian. She said, I know I'm saved. I know I'm saved. She said, I can't explain it to you, but she said, as we were looking into the Word of God in the middle of of the preaching time, she said it was like the Lord pulled back the curtain. She said, my father's not saved. And She said, for the first time in my life, it really hit me. 
If my daddy dies tonight, or Jesus comes tonight, he's lost forever. And she said, the longer I sat there, the more I couldn't escape the fact that here I was enjoying the Lord and all that God had done in my life, and my own father was perishing without God. And she said, finally, I couldn't take it anymore. And she said, when I left the building that night, she said, I went and found a telephone. And she said, I called my father. She said in the letters, he, and I love the faith in it. She said, he didn't get saved over the phone. She said, but I believe he's about to be saved. She said, do you know for the first time in my lifetime, he actually listened to me give the gospel. She said, through my tears that night over the telephone, he listened to me talk to him about his soul, and I believe he's soon to be saved. And I, I still remember sitting in my office reading that letter, and I thought to myself, probably the most important sermon preached that night was not the one I gave in the four walls of that church building. Probably the most important sermon given that night was the one that little lady gave to her lost daddy who needed Jesus. Look, friends, we're not going to get them all in this building, and we're not going to get them all under a sermon like I'm preaching to you today, but if all of God's children would take what we've received and get outside the four walls of this building and get outside of our own selves and get out of our comfort zones and open our mouth and speak for Jesus. I tell you, God may use you to bring some to heaven with you. Who would you like to get in the ark of safety? Eight, eight, that's what Noah had. I wonder what happened, preacher, if every Christian in this room would say, I'm going to ask God to give me eight. There's a wonderful crowd of people here today. But can you imagine if everybody in this room won eight souls to Christ? You know where it starts? With one. Let's do something. Let's have a big evangelistic gospel crusade in this town. Let's set up a big tent or rent the biggest building in the, in the, in the county. And let's have a big gospel crusade. Let's bring some preacher in and let him preach fire and brimstone and preach heaven sweet and hail hot and Jesus wonderful and Let's imagine, let's imagine for a second that on the first night of that meeting, 3,000 people get saved. How many of you would like to be there that night? I think 3,000 people, that's about the size of this town. Is that right? How many people live in this county? 28,000 people? All right, so watch this. Let's imagine the first night, 3,000 people get saved. And we come back the second night and 3,000 people get saved. We come back the next night and 3,000 people get saved. We come back the next night and 3,000 people that get saved. How many of you think that would get the attention of the newspaper? Look, even the, even the national news would converge on this little area. And they'd say, we don't know what's happening, but there's some spiritual awakening going on. There's, they're bringing in the kingdom in that part of Ohio. It'd be a big deal. Somebody said, that's what we need, preacher. That's what we need. That kind of preaching and that kind of meeting and that kind of response to the gospel. That's what we need if we're going to win the world. Did you know at the current world population, if nobody was born and nobody died, we froze it right now, the current world population, and we had that kind of meeting, and we had 3,000 people saved every night. That's the day of Pentecost. 3,000 people saved every night. At the current world population, it would take 5,000 years to evangelize our planet. Is there anybody in this room that thinks we have 5,000 years left before Jesus comes back? No. I got a crazy notion, okay? Now stay with me just for a second. Just stay with me for a second. Let's get one sinner saved. This looks like a good sinner right here. Let's get one sinner saved. <laughs> he and I have been talking about the Lord. That's how I know he's not. Let's say he trusts Jesus as his Savior. God begins working in him in a big way, and he gets a burden to see one other sinner saved. And let's imagine in the next 12 months 
that this new believer goes after one person and wins one other person to Christ. Somebody's going to say, well, that's nice, preacher. I mean, you know, he's not turning the world upside down, but he won somebody. Good for him. Well, wait a minute. Stay with me a second. Imagine the next year that the two of them then say, we're going to covenant together, and we're going to pray God will use each of us to reach one person with the gospel. I mean, you know, each person could reach one person, surely, over the course of 12 months. And so the next year, the two of them go after two more, and that year, help me class, two becomes how many? Four. And the next year, the four of them each say, we're each going to reach one. And so that year, the four each go after four more. That year, four becomes what class? Eight. And the next year, eight go after eight more, and that year, eight becomes eight more becomes what? Sixteen. And so the next year, the sixteen of them get together and say, hey, God's using us. Let's all go after one each this year. And that year, sixteen becomes how many? And the next year, thirty-two becomes, and I'm going to stop. Some of you are reaching for your calculators. Just pause for a moment, all right? Somebody said, well, that's nice, preacher. That's an interesting witnessing plan you've come up with. Excuse me. It's not my plan. Jesus came up with that plan. Did you know at the current world population, if nobody was born and nobody died and we did it that way, you could evangelize our planet in 34 years? Somebody said, that can't be right, preacher. Your math has to be wrong, preacher. No, no, it's a different principle. Look, it's the difference between addition and multiplication. Remember I said to you earlier, our God is a God of multiplication? I'm going to tell you, look, please, we've reduced gospel work to addition How many people can we get in the building so one man can preach the gospel and see how many people he can get saved? And so we have some added to the church. Listen, God doesn't just want them added to the church. The book of Acts, they moved from addition to multiplication. God wants to multiply his work. And the only way to multiply sinners saved is we've got to multiply the witnesses sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. You want to see something mighty for the Lord in this town? And let every believer in this room start taking seriously their responsibility to relay what they've received. Don't you keep it to yourself. And you begin to open your mouth and speak of Jesus. And I tell you, God will use you to save some. They won't all get saved, but some will. And you can't do everything, but you can do something. And I'm looking at these men, Noah and Lot, and I'm wondering, which one of these am I? You know what Noah left behind? A testimony of faith in God and a legacy of faith. We're still talking about him. Look, right here in this same state now, there's a giant ark. How many of you have been to visit it? Yes? And all these years later, people are talking about the ark and the ark and the ark and the ark. Do you know why? Because one man believed and obeyed God and God used him to impact the world with the grace of God. But have you ever met anybody that named their son Lot? In fact, when his name is spoken from the pulpit, people think the worst things, not the best thing. He was a saved man, but here's the problem. He kept it all to himself. I wonder, what will you leave behind? When it's all said and done, what will you leave behind? Would you grab your hymn book? Everybody grab a hymn book, would you please? And I'm not going to sing. If you've ever heard me sing, you'd probably praise God for that. But I want to show you a song. I look to see, it's in your hymn book, it's hymn 155 in your hymn book. I don't know if you know this, but it was written by a woman that lived not too far from here. In fact, Lelia Morris was kind of an entrepreneurial person. She, she owned her own hat shop here in the great state of Ohio. She was a dedicated Christian. She was very musical. 
When she was about 50 years of age, she went completely blind. Her kids were trying to help her build her a 28-foot-long blackboard. That's a big blackboard. They put it in her house, bought her a box of chalk, and they said, Mother, you lost your eyesight, but you haven't lost your gift. Don't stop writing songs. They said, when a song comes to you and God gives you something, just get to the blackboard and write it in big, bold letters on the blackboard. We'll come in and transcribe it all for you. And she kept writing and writing. She wrote hundreds of songs. And one day, Lily Morris took a piece of chalk and she wrote these words. Look at them. Powerful. Jesus is coming to earth again. What if it were today? In a dark hour, we know not when. What if it were today? Coming to claim his chosen bride, all the redeemed and purified over this whole earth scattered wide. What if it were today? Look at the third verse. Faithful and true, would he find us here? If he should come today. Watching in gladness, not in fear, if he should come today. All of God's children then will fly to clouds of glory in the sky. Watch, watch, for the time is drawing nigh. What if it were today? I tell you, when Jesus comes, if you're saved, you're going. That's not the question. The question is, who are you taking with you? I want to ask you a question. Would you lift your head and look at me just a moment? It's 11 minutes after 12. By 12.15, we'll be praying. Look, please. What if you knew at 12.15 Jesus was coming today? I mean, what if you knew it? Not that the preacher will be done at 12.15, not that we'll be on our way to lunch at 12.15. No, no. What if you knew, straight up and down, you got four minutes between now and when Jesus is going to come? Is there anything you would want to do in the next four minutes? Is there, is there anything you'd want to get right with God? Is there anybody you'd want to call? Is there anybody, any father you'd want to go find? Is, is there anything you think needs to be cared for so nothing is left undone if you knew you were on that kind of timetable? Here's the shocking thing. We may not even have four minutes. Do you understand any moment Jesus could come? You talk about a Lord's Day, some Lord's Day. I'm going to be somewhere preaching and the trumpet's going to sound. That's going to be a great Lord's Day. Man, I'd love to go to heaven with you all. I'd love to go to heaven from right here. Let's vote on it. How many of you like to go to heaven from here? Yes. Look, you can't think of a better way to go. But sometimes we've lost sight of this fact that the little time we have is a window of opportunity. And I wonder, between now and the moment you see Jesus, will you be Noah or will you be Lot? Our Father, I'm praying right now that the sweet Holy Ghost of God will do the deep, deep work in hearts only you can do. Oh, dear God, awaken us to eternity and the shortness of time. We sit quietly with our heads bowed prayerfully before the Lord for a moment. Before we have any music or movement, I want to ask a question or two. Be an honest person. How many of you know not you hope so, not you think so, not maybe. You know if Jesus came at 12.15, that's two minutes from right now.
You got two minutes. How many of you know, preacher, I'm ready to go. I'm not perfect, but Jesus has saved me, and I know I belong to him. I'm one of his. How many of you know that? Would you raise your hand toward heaven right now? You say, I know that, preacher. I know I've been born again. You may lower your hands. I must ask this question. I'm not assuming. Who is here today that would say, preacher, I couldn't raise my hand with confidence. I don't know that. I don't know for certain my sins have been forgiven and that he is mine and I am his, but I don't want to be lost. I don't want to be separated from God. I'm concerned about my soul, preacher. Pray for me. Would you slip your hand up in the air with mine long enough for me to see it? And pull it back down and say, pray for me, preacher. I'm looking carefully. Pray for me, preacher. I'm not sure I'm saved. Pray for me. Then best I can tell, I'm speaking to Christians. Now, I'm glad you're saved. I thank God that you're a part of the family and you're going with us. But if that's true, let's get down to business, shall we? I mean, let's get serious for a minute, Christians. Let's start here. How many saved people in this room would say, Preacher, if I was going to meet God in 60 seconds, if Jesus was coming at 12, 15, there's something in my own life that I need to get right with God. There's, there's something that I need to confess or forsake or yield or surrender or dedicate, but there's something in my life as a saved person I don't want to meet God with at the judgment seat of Christ. I need to give it to him now. That's me. Pray for me. I want you to raise your hand in the air with mine right now, would you please? Yes. I see you. More than that, God sees you. God knows what that is. In a minute, those of you just raised your hand, in a minute, I'm going to ask you to lead the charge to an old-fashioned altar. I'm going to ask you to be the first people just to leave your place and come tell God what you told me and be specific about it and yield yourself to him. Let's go a step further. How many believers in the room today would say, Preacher, I'm saved, and as far as I know, I'm right with the Lord. There's nothing I've held back from the Lord. But the truth is, I've not been living with eternity in view. I've, I've not been consumed with, with heaven and hell and forever like I ought to be. And this morning, I've got a little glimpse of it, and I, I need to live my days in light of eternity and make every one of them count. Pray I'll start today to do that. Would you raise your hand with mine right now? you say, that's me. Amen to that. Amen. Now, here's the real invitation. How many Christians in this room would say, Preacher, I've kept my mouth closed too much. It's funny, you know, we open our mouths about the wrong things, don't we? Close them about the right things. I'm going to raise my hand first. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand first. I'm going to raise my hand first because it's easier to preach this than it is to practice this. How many Christians in this room would be honest and say, Preacher, I haven't been the Christian witness and the testimony for Jesus trying to get the gospel to people and get people saved like I ought to be like I want to be. But today, I want that to change. I, I don't want to end like Lot with a closed mouth. I want to end like Noah, saving all I can, taking everybody I can with me to heaven. Preacher, that's me. Pray for me. I want you to raise your hand with mine right now all over this auditorium, would you? God bless you. Amen to that. Oh, oh, that the Spirit of God would awaken something in our hearts today. I'm going to give a little unusual invitation this morning. We're not going to sing, but in a moment I'm going to ask the instrumentalist to play. And, and here's what we're going to do. How many of you physically, and I, I mean this as a serious question, how many of you physically can get on your knees and get back up? And I, I don't take that for granted because everybody can't. How many of you can do that? Would you raise your hand? In a moment, I'm going to ask all of you that physically can and spiritually know God has spoken to you. I'm going to ask you to get on your knees. 
If you can leave your place and come to this old-fashioned altar and bow, I think that'd be good. If you physically can't leave your seat, then I'm going to ask you to turn around and make your pew your altar or get out in the aisle and kneel. But I'm going to ask you to kneel. If you're not able to kneel in a moment, I'm going to ask you to do the other reverent thing if you're able, and that is to stand. In the Bible, you don't see people lounging around praying. They're either on their face in the presence of a holy God or on their feet in the presence of the king. And so I'm going to ask in a few moments that all of us in this place that know God is speaking to us find a place on our knees or on our feet to talk to God. And here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Be, be thorough with the Lord in your prayer and ask God to be thorough with you. Call by name the thing God has put on your heart or the person God has put on your heart. And let's ask the Lord to help us to be right and help us to get others the gospel while we can. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to begin a prayer. I'm not going to say amen because I'm not ending it. I'm just starting it. And when I pause my part of the prayer, I'm going to point to the piano. She's going to begin to play. When she hits the first note, I'm going to ask you to leave your seat and find your place of prayer. If this Bible message has been used of God in your life, or we can pray for you in some definite way, please contact us at enjoyingthejourney.org. We hope you will share the message with others who may also be encouraged by it. For additional full-length Bible messages, please visit Dr. Scott Pauley's YouTube channel. Tomorrow is the Lord's Day, and we want to encourage you to be faithful to attend a Bible preaching church in your area this Sunday. Thank you for listening to The Weekend Pulpit, and don't miss Enjoying the Journey daily devotional podcast each Monday through Friday. Thank you.